I have entitled my uh, presentation a little differently than, than you have been told. I, I call it Holy Scripture, our epistemology. Holy Scripture, our epistemology. A case for the regulative principle of worship. My text is John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 30 through 42. John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 30 through 42. Please stand with me. Let's read the Word of God. We read from the New King James Version. The New King James Version. It begins with a statement by our Lord and follows with the reaction of the people. New King James. Okay, together. I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Any good works I have shown you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, Make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of there. And he went away again beyond the Jordan, to the place where John was baptizing at first. And there he stayed. And many came to him and said, John performed no sign. But all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. The word of the Lord. Father, open up our understanding and change us now. Let your word resonate in our hearts and minds and conform us to the image of your dear son Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, one of the things that is always powerful and compelling in human speech and rhetoric is the appearance and affirmation of certainty. It is very hard for us to ignore a person who speaks with authority and confidence whether or not their pronouncements ultimately prove to be true. <laughs> it makes us second guess ourselves, even when our personal positions on a matter have strong evidentiary and logical foundations. We second guess ourselves when we hear the confidence. We are curious about what exactly the speaker knows that we might have missed. <laughs> Certainty is powerful and disturbing. 
The word epistemology refers to the theory of knowledge. It involves the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from mere opinion. It is a term that normal people generally avoid, and for good reason. However, it captures the idea that we must examine how we know what we claim to know. Come on, that's epistemology. How we know what we claim to know. And I submit to you that our epistemology is scripture. Yes. That's how we know what we know. Amen. Our text chronicles another controversial encounter between our Lord Jesus and the religious establishment of Israel during his earthly sojourn. Our Lord had claimed divinity and equality with the Father. Now you know that's a problem. <laughs> huh? With that claim, the establishment heard blatant blasphemy and immediately embarked on the process of capital punishment to rectify what they perceived to be a most egregious breach of their civil, religious, and moral laws. They were determined to execute him. They were going to kill him. For you being a man, make yourself to be God. Just imagine that the Jews were very clear about that, but the Jehovah Witnesses today are not. <laughs> they knew exactly what he was talking about. Okay. Our focus in this message is on what our Lord Jesus focused upon in the middle of this ordeal. Our focus is on what he focused on. In the heat of this conflict, our Lord's response was to begin a Bible study. No kidding. You don't hear, you don't hear what I'm saying? Huh? <laughs> they were charging him with a capital offense. They were preparing to kill him. And how does he respond? Bible study. <laughs> he begins an exegesis of Psalm number 82 and verse 6. He said, What? Yes, you heard right. In the middle of being charged with a capital offense, our Lord starts a Bible study. Listen to me. There could not be a more highly charged, precarious, and dangerous situation than this. The important question for us this morning is, should our Lord's response in this situation inform our responses in similar situations? Should true disciples of Christ go straight to the Bible in the most intense moments of crisis in their lives? Amen. <laughs> Do we have the same attitude toward the scripture as our Lord? Is the scripture essential to our outlook, to our hearts, to our lives as it was to our Lord? When our minds are so terrified as to be emptied of everything else, is the scripture still there because our minds and hearts have been so saturated with it? Amen. Please notice that, that when in verses 34 and 35 of our text, our Lord quoted Psalm 82 verse 6, he added an aside that is crucial and significant. The little phrase placed in parentheses is, and the scripture cannot be broken. You see? Do you see it? The scripture cannot be broken. Listen, the modus operandi of our Lord's life 
was some of in that phrase that breathe aside if we are to be truly conformed to the image of Christ this must become the essence of our epistemology this is how we know what we know Let's study this little phrase. It's a passage. You read the whole passage and it goes from Yes, man. Just that little phrase. And the scripture cannot be broken. Let's study this brief aside, which assumes an entire worldview. And let's attempt to unpack its counsel to every true disciple of Christ here, as well as anyone who is looking for God's answer to the crises of life, including how we even worship Him. We shall study the two headings. One, the inspirational integrity of scripture. And two, the impactful influence of scripture. Number one, the inspirational integrity of scripture. Listen, when our Lord said that the scripture cannot be broken, he was affirming that it is true in its entirety. What's a broken word? What's a broken promise? Isn't it a false word? Or a false promise. <laughs> Broken words do not correspond to reality. They are untrue. So when the scripture cannot be broken, it is true in its entirety. The message is that nothing that the scripture asserts, nothing that it teaches, nothing that it says is untrustworthy. It is unimpeachable. This is just what our Lord said in his high priestly prayer in John 17 and verse 17 where he says, well, sanctify them by your truth. What happened now? Your word is truth. <laughs> the biblical argument made by our Lord when he quoted Psalm 82 and verse 6 was so pellucid that it actually exacerbated the problem. <laughs> it made things worse. There is a problem. You, you have just committed blasphemy. And so he quotes Psalm 86, 82 verse 6 and exegetes that psalm and he makes things worse. <laughs> Tells you about his intent. He makes the problem worse. This, you, if we ever thought that we were going to kill you, now we know we have to kill you. <laughs> look, at, look at this argument again in, in verse... 34 through 26 of the text. Jesus answered them. Hmm? Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him, speaking of himself, whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? What was our Lord saying? What was his point? I submit to you that the gods who are referred to in Psalm 82 and verse 6 were the judges of Israel. The judges of Israel. Those who meted out justice to the inhabitants of the land. The reason they were called gods, small g, is because a judge in Israel represented God's justice and exercised his authority as he judged God's people. Say with me. Our Lord was saying in effect, listen, if they call them gods, small g, what about me, who has come as the perfect representation of God among men? I have 
unique authority to judge not just the people of Israel, but the entire world. Now the religious establishment realized immediately exactly what he was saying. If they were ever burning with anger to kill him before, their anger was much hotter at this point. No, they really want to kill him. We have to kill this man. The argument was far more forceful than it ever had been in their minds before. Jesus of Nazareth was claiming to be judge of the entire world. He was essentially saying, if you call them gods, how much more me? Because they're just human judges. But I am the divine judge. <laughs> Our Lord was being charged with a capital offense, but in his defense, he had something to say about scripture. Please know that he did not choose a passage with a well-developed argument to make his point. <laughs> one like, like one from the law or the prophets. Instead, he chose a psalm. A poem that was sung in worship. He did not even choose a psalm with a famous author like David or Moses. He chose a psalm written by Asaph who was little known. He did not quote the whole psalm. <laughs> He merely extracted one word, God's, small g, and then built his entire argument from the single word. But that's serious exegesis, you know? That's serious exegesis. What was our Lord doing? What was he doing? Our Lord was practicing what he had taught in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. What did he teach there? For surely I say to you, till what? Heaven and earth pass away. One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. A jot and a tittle were parts of letters. What the Lord was teaching here is that it well is what, what, what we call today plenary authority. Plenary. He was teaching that it is not select parts of scripture that are important, but every part. He was teaching that every minute detail should be examined and treated with the utmost seriousness, whether God used famous authors or unknown authors. He was emphatically affirming that every verse, somebody say every verse, every word and every part of a word was divinely inspired and authoritative and that none of it can be broken. None of it. Our Lord, without apology or hesitation, had built his whole life and whole case on the word God's in Psalm 82 verse 6. This means that we must reject any notion that New Testament grace can be embraced while supposedly Old Testament wrath is dismissed. <laughs> the whole notion is flawed anyway, for there is grace and wrath in both sections of scripture. Hmm? Also, we cannot love Christ in the Gospels and reject the Apostle Paul in the Epistles. I was, I was preaching at a church in Kansas City, Missouri, many years ago. And I decided uh, in some school hour to walk to the adult class. And a woman put up her hand. I was at the back. And the raised her hand said, You know, I, I just love the words of Jesus in the Gospels. But this Paul, I can't stand Todd. I can't stand this Paul. <laughs> 
to say, what am I hearing here at all? She didn't know that Paul is an apostle of this Jesus, an apostle of Christ. That he clearly spoke not with his own authority, but with the authority of Christ. There is no daylight between Paul and Christ. They are on the same page. The point is that our Lord does not permit a hermeneutic that is selective. He affirmed a plenary view of scriptural authority. The scripture in all its parts cannot be broken. True followers of Christ will follow Christ's approach to scripture. But you're not even hearing me. I said true followers of Christ will follow what? His approach to scripture. That's all there is to it. What is your approach to scripture? Our generation has become radically individualistic and in many ways terribly anti-authority. There is a general um, negative knee-jerk reaction to and rejection of anyone who promotes things like godly submission and service and discipline and responsibility. The popular personality is the one who repeatedly utters the language of choice and fulfillment and freedom and personal growth and potential and there's a champion in you Joe Lusty as a matter of fact I think it was Elder Charles at Grossley who told me that there was a gentleman who left the church and he says because of Pastor Jonas he told me so so I said me I live in Nigeria he said no you came there and you preach hard against Joel Osteen, and the man loved Joel Osteen, so he finished with the church. The pastor told me running my members away. He said, but that's a good one to run away. <laughs> Lord of mercy, Joel Osteen with a smile. <laughs> He's inspired. The man, the man's a good marketer. And his message is, there's a champion in you. That's his message. Champion in you. Champion in you, there's sin in you. <laughs> you good. good. Anyway. <laughs> Listen, folks. A commitment to Holy Scripture is the only foundation that will stand in such cultural lostness. A rejection of authority only makes us empty, gullible, and vulnerable in a quest for meaning without a foundation. How can we chart a journey without figuring out exactly where we are? That is why following Christ is also a commitment to follow scripture. For Christ followed scripture. (laughs) Any attempt at spirituality without scriptural foundation is not only futile, it's fundamentally fake. The essence of Christianity is the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ as the answer to all that troubles humanity. You you didn't even hear me. You heard me? I just boiled down everything for you here. I said the essence of Christianity is the active and passive obedience of Christ as the answer to all of our troubles. He said, Pastor, that's a comprehensive statement. (laughs) In presenting this case to the whole world, the centerpiece is a book that is full of undiluted truth, the Holy Scripture. I tell people all the time, you know, Illiteracy is of the devil because God wrote a book. You didn't hear me? God always intended for us to read. That's why he produced a book. Illiteracy is demonic to the core. You should fight it. 
Huh? Listen, listen to me. Obviously, this has some serious implications for disciples of Christ. For one, true disciples of Christ cannot tolerate shallowness of thought. Oh, you didn't hear me. Hmm? They must be serious, hard, and radical thinkers. Christians must be thinkers. There seems to be a lingering perception among many that Christian conversion necessitates intellectual suicide. This is totally preposterous. In fact, the opposite is true. Because our faith is rooted in authoritative revelation, we can immediately test and challenge any idea or concept that approaches us. <laughs> this is important because authority is unavoidable. What did I say? Authority is what? It's unavoidable. The absurdity of an anti-authority culture is that it is blind to the fact that its rebellion is just a new authority. Because <laughs> authority is unavoidable. The foundation of divine authority, the word of God, the word of God, is the perfect foundation to test and challenge all competing authorities. Whether or not such authorities are ethnic solidarity. You know what I mean by that, right? The authority in a lot of people's lives in the Caribbean is black this and black that and black power. Yes. <laughs> you can be black all the way to hell. Yes. That's not my identity. My identity is not my ethnic um, uh, heritage. No, 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 no. Some people, the identity is, is what? A family. Family loyalty. And some of you jolly well know that some of the biggest problems in your life come from family. Huh? For some people, their identity is, 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 is what? Uh, the official academic assumptions. <laughs> Even though these sometimes have no evidentiary basis. This is the official position. I, I, like the story with the emperor with no clothes. Walking down the road. And everybody is so afraid of him. They're saying, oh, how beautifully dressed you are. And they love it. But they didn't tell it to boy. I decided the road because... He's not into the politics. <laughs> look at the man. <laughs> look at the man. <laughs> anyway, he's understood. But sometimes the official academic position rules, whether it's abortion, whether it's evolution. Uh, what, what's a new mythology? Somebody was speaking about a new mythology sometime. Chance. chance. <laughs> the ultimacy of chance. Yeah? You can go on and on and on. For some, it's a party line. For some it's the social media trends. For some it's the consensus of their peers. For some it's their social standing. But listen, without scripture, holy scripture, all of these authorities intimidate us and demand a slavish conformity. But with scripture, we are free to think and to question it all. <laughs> the job of true disciples of Christ is to be so saturated with the word of God. That we can actually get to the place where we begin to realize how the mind of God works. This is where we are clearly not just randomly moving from one theme to another, from one idea to another. We are not just interrupting our boredom with clever and creative discussions. We know where, where this is going. You see, we get it. This is all about the glory of God. Through the imputed righteousness of Christ that removes our sinful inheritance and the corrupt tendencies of our hearts to set us on a trajectory of perfect holiness in the presence of God eternally. That's the whole gospel. 
Some of you didn't even hear the gospel while ago. I said the whole gospel while ago. I tried to solve the whole thing. I said, we get it. What did we get? That all of this is about the glory of God through what? The imputed righteousness of Christ that removes what? Our sinful inheritance and the corrupt tendencies of our hearts to do what? To set us on a trajectory of perfect holiness in the presence of God eternally. (laughs) We get it. We can now be fearless in our pursuit of truth. If what our Lord taught is true, there is an irreducible minimum in being a Christian. We have to be thinkers, a person who masters the body of truth because this scripture cannot be broken. It's all true. Does anybody agree with me? I said it's all true. Even when it is misunderstood for the Holy Spirit will guide God's people into all the truth. It's all true. Even when it is unpopular for God's absolutes are totally indifferent to the opinions of men. It's all true. Even when it is inconvenient and uncomfortable for sanctification requires a word that both cuts and heals. It's all true. Even when it is dangerous for kingdoms will rise and kingdoms will fall but God's truth just keeps marching on. Secondly and finally, the impactful influence of scripture. The impactful influence of scripture. When our Lord said that the scripture cannot be broken, he was not just affirming the necessity of embracing its trustworthiness, but also the imperative of implementing its precepts in the real issues of our life. Will somebody say implementing? <laughs> in other words, the Holy Scripture is so authoritative that it does not just command cognitive engagement. It has functional authority. It does not just have authority over what we believe. It has authority over how we behave. In verse 34 of our text, our Lord quotes Psalm 82 6 and refers to it as law. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Look at verse 34. He, he quotes Psalm 82, verse 6, and he refers to it as law, even though it is clearly not a part of the Torah or, or the moral, civil, and ceremonial laws of Israel. Hmm, your law. Our Lord's use of the Psalms, the inspired poetry of Israel, referring to it as law was a reminder that all of scripture must be revered, engaged, studied, and definitively obeyed. Even the Psalms had to be kept. None of the scripture is to be broken or allowed to fall to the ground. Listen, this matter of carefully adhering to Holy Scripture is a practical guide, well, as a practical guide for life and living, is generally looked down upon in our generation. People look down upon that. There is an arrogant self-righteousness that comes from many, especially but not limited to, those who consider themselves to be right and a part of the intelligentsia. <laughs> they, they basically think that scriptural adherence is, ra- is a rather childish approach to life. You, 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 you won't follow that ancient book? Uh, let it tell you everything to do? Hmm? They think that it is childish to expect concrete black and white answers from an ancient document to be the foundation of one's life. They think that it is juvenile 
to submit to an authority that tells us what to do about everything. They are appalled that believers are so sure of the answers when in their view, there are no answers at all. <laughs> this snobbery of Christianity reveals, well, affirms that, it affirms that real maturity is, is, is seen when we simply accept our existential emptiness and try to make the most of life. Okay, so they figure, well, listen, there are no answers, you are kidding yourself, it's stupidness. Listen, no answers are there, just do the best you can. <laughs> All who are so sure that the answers, you're just childish. They're actually sorry for those of us who are disciples of Christ and promote a radical biblicism. They're sorry for us. But listen to me. Such a perspective is not only a colossal misunderstanding of Christianity, but it also manifests a massive ignorance about what it is to be childish. Come on, talk to me. The heart of childishness is, is, is when we demand that the world revolve around us. As well as when we insist that we must have our way in everything. Isn't that childishness? That is what childishness is, but then they start. Childish people attempt to throw temper tantrums until there is a concessionary yielding to their selfish ends. That's childishness. Childish people gravitate to any worldview that encourages them to find their own truth. Just hear that. Their own truth. Yeah, you, you, you listen to CNN, uh, MSNBC, uh, you hear people talk about it. Let the man speak his truth. <laughs> his, his, his truth. <laughs> Find your own truth. I submit to you that this is the ascendancy of immaturity. Listen, biblical Christianity is not childish, but it's childlike. Uh, you, you hear what I'm saying? I said biblical Christianity is not childish. What is it? It's childlike. This is what our Lord meant in, in Matthew 18 and verse 4 when he says, Therefore, whoever humbles himself as his little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is, this is not a childish selfishness and lust that looks on the inside for validation. No, no, no. This is a childlike selflessness and trust that looks to the word of God for confirmation. This childlike trust is focused on holiness to the glory of God, not happiness to the glory of self. Mm. Ironically, such a focus on holiness invariably results in happiness. It is just plain nonsense to suggest that Christianity is fundamentally childish. That it takes the line of least resistance for those who demand the simplicity of a life uh, to which they are, in, in which they are told what to do. But listen... The reality is that this is only biblical Christianity that manifests the maturity to accept the reality that there are absolutes, moral absolutes, which when violated will lead to misery and pain. Childishness invites you to put your head in the sand. The fact of the matter is that until we submit to scriptural authority, we will forfeit true liberty. I said, until we submit to scriptural authority, we will forfeit what? True liberty. Until we trust and obey, we will never find the right way. <laughs> until we think God's thoughts after him, we will be locked into a delusional paradigm. Until we celebrate God's regulative prescriptions, we will only idolize our moral corruption. Biblical Christianity is for people who have been given the spiritual backbone to admit that they're lost. <laughs> 
that, 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 that there are moral absolutes that need to be adhered to. That, that there is a great designer behind every design. That the Almighty has spoken and that we will ignore His revelation to our parent. <laughs> this is for people with the maturity to stop pretending that there are no consequences for immorality. People who have no time for the delusion that the world is not evil. Biblical Christianity reminds us that there is a functional authority outside of us that demands that we ignore any notion that the emotions and feelings on the inside of us should guide our choices. It is the objective word of God that should guide our choices, not our feelings. <laughs> One of our Lord's powerful demonstrations of the pivotal place of scriptural guidance was in the heat of his passion in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that? In the midst of his agony and suffering, even as the full brunt of heaven's wrath was directed at him. What did he cry out? I'm going to quote it for you. Luke chapter 22 and verse 42. He said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He submitted to the will of the Father. For according to the prophet Isaiah, where is that now? Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Hmm? Yet it pleased the Lord to do what? To bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you shall, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Listen to me. Only a beautiful liar refuses to admit that any call to a disciplined life rooted in scriptural authority is essential, well, is initially chilling to his ears. <laughs> when, when the Bible is opened up and we are told that we must obey, initially it's chilling to our ears. Yeah. We don't want to hear that. However, we must also admit that the brief feelings of apprehension soon turns into a glorious celebration for the peace and order of biblical discipline far outweighs the pain and pandemonium of moral relativism. Listen to me. We need to be clear about why we are often rejecting the word of God. You know? I said we need to be clear about that. Our rejection of Holy Scripture is rooted not in the supposed difficulty or burdensome nature of God's moral imperatives. No, 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 no. It is rooted often in our cynical suspicions about the promises of God that follow obedience. Can I put it plain? Many just do not believe that obedience will yield the results that are promised in Scripture. That's the problem. Even professing believers from time to time, we don't really believe Look, if I obey here, a whole heap of trouble I'm going to get in. And we don't believe that his promises are true concerning obedience. Take for instance our Lord's promise in John chapter 8 verse 31 and 32. What did he promise there? What did he promise? John 8 31 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believe him. Believe in Jews. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth, what? Shall make you free. Now, the problem is that many are suspicious that obedience will not deliver the goods. 
will not bring true freedom but yield a frustrating incarceration in the prison of unfulfilled desire. Many are lacking in faith. Their trust is in their own devices. They reason, they reason, look, I need to manage my own happiness in <laughs> I need action right now. I need results right now. Wait, wait for what? I've been waiting for too long to enjoy my life. If I will get what I want in life, I'm going to take it. By any means necessary. This is how we reason. Okay, we don't want to admit it like now. In church right now, so you don't want to admit something like that. But that's, this is how people reason. By the way, this is the functional worldview of the reprobate. But hear me. This is also the occasional, momentary excursion of the undisciplined disciple of Christ. Even Christians end up talking like that. However, it is only when we are prepared to divest ourselves. Somebody say divest. We're only when we prepare to divest ourselves of all of our personal devices and resources and instead submit to God's scriptural revelation that we will experience what is written in Psalm 34 and verse 8. What is it? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It didn't say, see and taste. Lord have mercy. Some people say, well, you know, seeing is believing. No, 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 no. Not in God's economy. It's believing is seeing. Until you believe, you're not going to see a thing. So taste, come on. And see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who does what? Trust in him. If we can, by the grace of God, end the suspicion of the veracity of God's promises... If we can stop focusing on what other people need to do and start doing what God has explicitly told us to do, it is only then that we will stop delaying the unfolding of God's blessings in our lives. Are we, by our faithlessness, postponing the blessings of God in our lives? It is important that we face this thing frontally, you know. Are we prepared to call our Lord Jesus a liar? What are we, why are we questioning his his premises? Where has he failed to deliver according to his word? Where? Should we not trust him? He promised that when he sits on the throne of judgment, certain things will happen. Hmm? Matthew chapter 19 and verse 29, he said what? Everyone who has left houses, or brothers, who else? Sisters, fathers, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, what land? He shall receive a hundredfold and inherit what? Do you believe? You know, ultimately, you have to answer the question, you know. Do you believe? Are we going to trust him? One of the Puritans, Samuel Rutherford, suggests that we take the plunge and just trust him. He was convinced that it would be worth it in the final analysis. Let me quote from him. He said, our little inch of time suffering is not worthy of our first night's welcome home in heaven. You heard him? He wasn't finished. He continued. When once Jesus shall thrust your weary traveler's head on his breast, you will find just the first one of his kisses will fully pay for 50 years of sore hearts. The man will finish it up. <laughs> Listen to how he finishes. He says, Oh, don't sell this for Esau's morning breakfast. 
Like, you didn't hear the man. He says, don't sell this. You know, you know what he said, huh? Get where you go and inherit this over. He says, Oh, don't sell all this for Esau's morning breakfast. <laughs> it is written in Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is the way of death. Listen, folks, the enemy of, the enemy of our souls has a vested interest in perpetuating confusion about the effects of a radical commitment to Holy Scripture. His subtle lies include the notion that well, when we give ourselves completely to the authority of God's word, this will hurt us, <laughs> crush us in guilt, and eliminate all of our options. <laughs> He's fooling a lot of us, telling us that if we obey, it will hurt us. The truth from the word of God is that the solution to our problems is counterintuitive. It is only by complete submission to, to scripture revelation concerning Christ's person and work of atonement that we will experience the freedom to challenge the sin around us. By submitting to the word of God, we will find true freedom to, to testify of that saving and keeping work of Christ. <laughs> See, God's word liberates us. Come on, in every aspect of our life, including worship. God's word, what? It liberates us from the shallowness of our own minds. It liberates us from the datedness of this world's wisdom. It liberates us from the limited capacity of human research. It liberates us from the anxiety of human ignorance. It liberates us from the pain of human error. It liberates us from the tyranny, the tyranny of human consensus. God's word liberates us. Okay, let me make a quick application to the regulative principle of worship now. <laughs> we must define it. So let's put up a definition. Hmm? Simply put, the regulative principle of worship states that the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon specific directions of Scripture. If the Scripture cannot be broken, if all of the above is true, the regular principle of worship says that the corporate worship of God is to be founded upon specific directions of Scripture. That's it. On the surface, it is difficult to see why anyone who values the authority of Scripture would find such a principle objectionable. <laughs> is not the whole of life itself to be lived according to the rule of Scripture? This is a principle dear to the hearts of all who call themselves biblical Christians. To suggest otherwise is to open the door of antinomianism and license. Alright? But things are really so simple. <laughs> because there are things happening now that we will say back then they didn't have to deal with. <laughs> huh? And so many will question whether or not we, we are indeed following the regulative principle and we go back and forth. Well, scripture lays down certain specific requirements. For example, we are to worship with God's people. On the Lord's Day. Uh, for instance, we, we are to engage in useful work and earn our daily bread. I think all of these things are clear and obvious. In addition, covering every possible circumstance, we could even quote Romans 12, 1 and 2, which says what? Present your bodies what? Well, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. 
And this is a government by the mercies of God that you do what? Cleanse your body is what? A living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your what? Your reasonable service. And be not what? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may what? Prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Clearly, all of life is to be regulated by scripture, whether by express commandment or prohibition or by general principle. There is therefore, in a sense, a regulative principle for all of life. In everything we do, and in some form or another, we are to be obedient to scripture. However, and this is where we come to the regulative principle of worship now. However, the reformers, John Calvin especially, and the Westminster divines, as, uh, as the representatives of 17th century Puritanism, they viewed the matter of corporate worship differently. They've helped us tremendously. In this instance, a general principle of obedience to scripture is insufficient. You heard me? I said a general principle of obedience to scripture is insufficient. There must be and there is a specific prescription governing how God is to be worshipped corporately. In the public worship of God, specific requirements are made and we are not free either to ignore them or to add to them. Typically, okay, let me, let me quote John Calvin. He said, in the necessity of, the, of, of reforming the church, he said, God disapproves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word. Now we already dealt with how Jesus viewed the word. <laughs> it cannot be broken. We have to have as Christians our Lord's view of scripture. In the second London Baptist Confession of 1689, I'm going to quote chapter 22 verse, um, paragraph 1. The acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Give him what he wants! Don't say, I like this. Let me offer this. Somebody had a problem. His name was Cain. <laughs> I like this. This is what I have. Let me give him that. No, 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 no. Give him what he wants. Because he was very clear about what he wants in worship. <laughs> Where does the Bible teach this? I don't have a lot of time and I'm not going to have you look up all of these scriptures but I will, I will just list them for you okay in more places than is commonly imagined including the constant stipulation of the book of Exodus with specific with, with respect to the building of the temple uh, that everything be done how Exodus 25 40 after the pattern <laughs> hmm I already alluded to the judgment pronounced upon Cain's um, offering, suggesting that it was his offering for his heart, and it was deficient according to God's requirement in Genesis 4, verses 3 through 8. Mm -hmm. 
How about the first and second commandment showing God's particular care with regard to worship? Exodus 20 verses 2 through 6. Hmm? How about the incident of the golden calf teaching it uh, teaching as it does that worship cannot be offered merely in accord with our own values and tastes. That's the whole of Exodus chapter 32. Hmm? How about the story of Nadab and Abihu and the offering of strange fire in Leviticus 10? Yeah? Hmm? How about God's rejection of Saul's non-prescribed worship? God said to obey is better than sacrifice. Remember 1 Samuel 15, 22? Hmm? How about when our Lord rejected the Pharisees' worship, which was a quote, a, according to the tradition of the elders, in, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 14. All of these indicate a rejection of worship offered according to values and directions other than those specified in Scripture. Your worship should not have been anything that is not specified in Scripture. Of particular significance are the Apostle Paul's responses to errant public worship in Colossae and Corinth. <laughs> At one point, the Apostle Paul characterized the public worship in Colossae as what? Colossians chapter 2, verse 23. Will worship. Come on now. Huh? Self-made religion is how the ESV puts it. <laughs> Will worship self-made religion. The Colossians had introduced elements that were clearly unacceptable. Even if they were claiming an angelic source for their actions. <laughs> One possible interpretation of Colossians 2.18, you know, the worship of angels. Perhaps it is in the Corinthian use, or maybe we should say abuse, of tongues and prophecy that we find the clearest indication of the apostles' willingness to regulate corporate worship. You see regulation there. He regulates both the number and order of the use of spiritual gifts in a way that does not apply to all of life. No tongue is to be employed without an interpreter. You heard it? Come on, study 1 Corinthians 14, 27 and 28. And only two or three prophets may speak and in turn. <laughs> you know, I, I usually like to point out to the charismatics who want to preach um, that um, you, you don't have a situation where these things have ceased. That, okay, let's pretend that they have not ceased, I say to you. What about the regulatory principle concerning the administration of these gifts in the early church? Hmm? What's happening? For one, nothing that happened back then is what happening now. Because he said what? Nobody's supposed to speak without an interpreter. Amen. Watch the charismatic churches on the TV. Everybody hand up and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so, that's all. So you know that whatever is happening in that charismatic church is not of God. Okay? Two. Whatever religion. One at a time. And only two or three. <laughs> Read First Corinthians 14. What else? What is the regulation? No women. <laughs> no women as the prophesy. No women are supposed to speak in the church. And what happened? Women today are leading it? Lord have mercy. <laughs> So if there is a regulative principle, we actually follow the scripture. By the way, that's not my case, you know. That, that case is if it has not ceased. <laughs> we know otherwise because the scripture is complete. Anyway, uh, at the very least, the apostles' instruction to the Corinthians underlines the cor that corporate worship is to be regulated and in a manner that applies differently 
from that which is true of all of life. In other words, you have a special consideration here with regards to corporate worship. Okay? Now, what is the result? What is the result? Let's go here. Okay? The result is that particular, regular elements of worship are highlighted. Mm. Let's list them. And it's all about scripture. Again, we have to come back to the fact that the scripture cannot be broken. It's all about scripture. So what are you doing? What's the result? A, B, C, D, E. A is what? Read the Bible. In our time, Jesus has been clear about how corporate worship works in our day. We're not killing animals anymore because what? The Lamb of God has been killed once for all. We're talking about now. Worship now. A is what? Reading the Bible. Look up 1 Timothy 4.13. I don't have the time. B, what? Preaching the Bible. Come on, it's all about the Bible. <laughs> huh? 2 Timothy 4.2. C, what? Singing the Bible. <laughs> Come on. Huh? Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16. What else? Praying the Bible. Look, you know you can't go wrong if you give him back his words. Don't, don't pray as you like. Pray as he taught. Praying the Bible. The Father's house is to be what? House of prayer, Matthew 21, 13. What else? Seeing the Bible. How do you see it now? In the two ordinances of believers, baptism and the Lord's Supper. <laughs> so worship. This is it. That's it. Anything else is false worship. Anything else. Don't allow anything else in your corporate worship. In the worship of God. Read the Bible. Preach the Bible. Sing the Bible. Pray the Bible and see the Bible in the ordinances. That's it. <laughs> oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. <laughs> it is important to realize that the regulatory principle is applied to public worship. As applied to public worship, frees the church from acts of impropriety and idiocy. Hmm? Yet it does not give you a cookie cutter approach. We don't have to have liturgical sameness. Come on. Yes. You know, some people go to some people's church and they think, well, the, the order of worship is not exactly like this. These people must be sinning. <laughs> Nonsense. Nonsense. We have to look for these elements. As long as these are the elements, this is biblical worship according to the regulatory principle. <laughs> Within an, within an adherence to the principle, there is enormous room for variation. Come on. Uh, we have a big word for that. Adiophora. Adiophora. Thus, the regular principle as such may not be invoked to determine whether contemporary or traditional songs are employed. <laughs> whether three verses or the whole chapter is to be read. <laughs> this is nonsense. Whether a long prayer or several short prayers should be made, <laughs> come on. Or whether a single cup where everybody drink from it and, 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 and sip on everybody's spit, or, or get individual cups where you can have your own um, hygiene. I don't know. I'm not going to argue about that. That's not a regular principle. 
this real communion boy that's really getting together of the former <laughs> oh lord of mercy I, I take the individual cups please uh, I'll take that one but I won't mandate it uh, by the way if you don't really like that and you, you don't trust them wiping you know you have to be the glad wiping the if you don't trust that and it's communion time and you're in a real church and they offer communion you take it <laughs> anyway okay what, what's my point <laughs> My point is, there is the adiophora. So don't get crazy with this thing. Are you understanding what I'm saying? There's room for variation, but you can't change this. You can't change this. This is what he requires. Don't give him anything else. Don't give him more. Don't give him less. Give him what he wants. And that's what he wants of his church. <laughs> to all these issues, the principle is what? All things should be done how? First Corinthians fourteen forty. All things should be done how? Decently and in order. However, if someone suggests that um, dancing or drama is a valid aspect of public worship, the question must be asked: Where is the scriptural justification for that? There is no shred of biblical evidence, let alone mandate for either. Does, does that mean that we negate drama? Huh? Rule out dancing? Well, there may be other contexts where these things can be like, but not corporate worship. Hmm? It is superfluous to argue from the poetry of the Psalms or even from the example of David dancing before the ark. Naked, to be sure. So if you want to invoke David, you have to take off your clothes. Don't invoke David, you have to take off your clothes. Alright? Are you understanding? Unless we are willing to abandon all received rules of biblical interpretation, <laughs> Lord have mercy. It is <laughs> it's a it's a salutary fact that no office of choreographer or producer director existed in the temple. Night in the synagogue, night in the local church. Yes? The fact that both dance and drama are valid Christian pursuit. It's beside the point. Hmm? Okay? Don't bring it in the corporate worship of God. Huh? Liturgical dance is my foot. Huh? We have a dance program in our school, you know, and in most of the girls, we have to push the boys and do some dances, but the boys and them say they, they figure that if they make me dance, they, the boys don't think I'm an anti-man. But, but, but anyway, but most of the girls are involved with this dance thing, and they do a fantastic job. You should come and see some of our dances. But nothing corporate worship, sir. As a school program. Amen. Are you all hearing what I'm saying to you? Yes. And it's done modestly. Yes. Are you on? Huh? What is sometimes forgotten in these discussions is the important role of conscience. Without the regulative principle, we are at the mercy of so-called worship leaders and bullying pastors who charge non-compliant worshippers with displeasing God unless they participate according to a certain pattern and manner. To the victims of such religious bullies, the sweetest sentences ever penned by men are, God alone is the Lord of the conscience, 
and have left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to the word of God or beside it in matters of faith and worship. So that <laughs> to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. This is from the Westminster Confession, uh, chapter 20 verse 2. To obey when it's a matter of God's express prescription is true liberty. Anything else is bondage and legalism. In closing, I must affirm that the power of the word is unleashed when it gets personal. Oh, you didn't even hear me. I said the power of the word is unleashed when it gets what? Personal. Its inspirational integrity is compelling, carrying the self-authenticating majesty of its author, who is the Ancient of Days. It cannot be ignored indefinitely. It cannot be evaded without significant cost. Evaded. As long as it is handled as merely a cognitive exercise, never being translated into a personal, intimate, experimental flashing out in life, it is a dormant volcano. But when it truly becomes ours, somebody say ours. When it becomes ours, it erupts. It erupts into an impactful influence that is on a trajectory to glory. It must get personal. It must become ours. It must be truly ours. You know, the hymn writer has put it succinctly and powerfully for us. He said, Holy Bible, book be mine, precious treasure, what? <laughs> what mine? <laughs> mine to tell me whence I came. That means you didn't even know where I come from until you got to the word of God. Mine to teach me what I am. <laughs> That's the cause. He wasn't finished. He says, Mine to chide me when I roll. Mine to show a Savior's love. Mine thou art to guide and guard. Mine to punish. Or reward. <laughs> gotta get personal. He wasn't finished. He said, mind to comfort in distress. Suffering in the wilderness. Mind to show by living faith we can triumph over death. It's got to get personal. He said, it's mine to tell of joys to come and the rebel sinner's doom. Oh, thou holy book divine. Precious treasure. Thou art mine. Thank you. Amen.